Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the challenging paradoxes we face as humans, the challenges of being a spiritual being in a physical reality, and the need to fully accept and embody the now while we simultaneously desire, strive for, and imagine a different and more fulfilling future. The often elusive fact that we are inextricably connected to every living being on the planet and of a higher power, yet frequently feel desperately alone and powerless. And I've been thinking about what it takes to lead ourselves and others to a place of thriving and contentment in the midst of striking paradox. My guest today is Mark Lesser. Mark is the co-founder of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute and the author of fabulous book, uh, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. Welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks. It's really a pleasure to be with you here. Mark, so I'm just going to dive in. When you say in the book, I believe we all have one career. This career is living a mindful life. And I thought we could start with talking about the seeming paradox um, of your career and, and how you got here. The, the mix of the Zen kitchen and, and being a business leader. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, um, it, it's interesting just kind of mirroring what you were saying about the the one career. Um, I get asked a lot for career advice from a, a really wide range of people. It's interesting, uh, very young people and very old people and people in between and people in different places in their, in their careers. And, and I find it, I find it really helpful to, um, to reframe uh, and and to think that as you were kind of quoting me and I would add on to that right our one career is is developing our awareness and and I would add to that and helping others uh, and those two things are are real uh, simplification of what our work lives can be having said that of course it's important what we're doing and to find alignment um, in our work uh, to, <laughs> to answer your question um, well, maybe the, the the really short version, and we can go back into that more. The yeah, short- give us the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch. Yeah, I was um, I was a uh, I was a college student at Rutgers in New Jersey, and uh, decided to take a a one year leave of absence from school and to pursue kind of life outside of college, a kind of a spiritual quest. And, and I went from New Jersey to uh, where, where things were all happening, which was San Francisco, and uh, wandered in to the, the San Francisco Zen Center. And, um, and as soon as I walked in to the Zen Center, there was actually a kind of a very gentle voice inside of me that said, I think, I think this is the education that I need. In fact, I think this is a place worth 10 years of my life. And I actually stayed for 10 years. And it was, uh, it was during my 10th year, I was director of a place called Tassahara, which is this in- incredible spot on the planet in the wilderness, uh, Los Padres Mountains, wilderness, central California. Uh, Tassahara is a very traditional Zen monastery in the winter and then turns into a very traditional conference and retreat center in the summer. And I was the director uh, there and and one day woke up and had this other aha 
that though I was a um, a Zen student, I was also running a business. Uh, Tassahara, you know, I was responsible for about 60, uh, 60 other students who were running the resort and conference center. You know, we had a you know, a million dollar budget and all, and many of the kind of problems and opportunities of any small business. And I was really struck by how much I enjoyed leading and, and was also struck by how, how well it seemed like these awareness practices, contemplative practices of Zen and work practice, the practices of getting things done, they seem like they just we're so uh, made for each other, so uh, meshed brilliantly. And I, and I remember thinking, why isn't everybody doing this? Why isn't everyone integrating these kinds of contemplative practices in with their work? And, and the more reading I did, I realized people were in a lot of ways, but weren't using that language. Um, and I, de- I decided that was going to be the... Uh, the main focus of my work life. And I uh, went right from uh, 10 years of the Zen Center to get an MBA degree at New York University, uh, which was on Wall Street at the time, and and came, came out of business school. And I ended up uh, starting a company. I started a publishing company called Brush Dance that was making calendars and greeting cards and other things out of uh, recycled paper. I just want to say, because I think that it, I don't want to let it slip by, you know, you said, you know, you wondered at that point why everyone wasn't doing that. And I think you've already answered that question in the fact of those first few steps that you kind of had a feeling when you were at Rutgers. Um, and, and the key there is then you followed that feeling and you, you let it lead you. So you let it lead you to San Francisco and then you let it lead you to wander into the Zen Center. And then I think the magical point is the turning point, which, which a lot of us fail at is you had a voice that came up and said, hmm, you know, and you said a quiet voice, but but loud enough for you to listen to and then take action on, which must have been an extremely brave step at the time uh, to leave university and say, I'm going to move to this new place and I'm going to start living at this Zen center, um, you know, not only for yourself, but for your family and, and the community that, that was supporting you in, in whatever ways at the university to, to make such a big step. And I I think that I just don't want to let that um, float out into the ethers with, without shedding some light onto it. That that's that's a huge thing. Many things come up for me in responding to what you're saying there, Ellie. And, and as you asked me about you know those different pivots and changes and decisions that I was making, and it, it reminds me a lot of my answer when people ask me now, like. Uh, Mark, why do why do companies, why do business people bring you in to do the work that you do in the the realm of mindfulness and emotional intelligence? And and my my two word answer is uh, pain and possibility. That people feel a sense of something's not quite right, some sense of out of alignment, and at the same time, this possibility of getting into alignment, this possibility for growth and learning, and that's. When I think of the the various transitions in my own life from uh, from having left college, there was something quite painful about something out of alignment in being in that place. It felt it was like too small or too safe. 
not quite right. And at the same time, I felt this tremendous possibility for moving into some other way of seeing or being and living in the world. And, um, and, and I think that listening to those two voices seems so, so important and powerful. And I'd say, similarly, after 10 years of living at the San Francisco Zen Center, though it, I was a completely different person and the issues were different, again, there was like, oh, this, this, isn't, this is no longer the right place for me. It's time, time for me to take some, some step. And yeah, it's some mix of feeling um, courage. And, yeah, there's some courage. You know, I, I sometimes joke, you know, there's a thin line between, you know, courage and stupidity. Um, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, it's, it's so interesting to look back at the decisions that we make. Well, it is, right? And there's a trusting in there. And I think it's it's at the core of the book as far as, you know, why, and maybe the next question to Tantan is, why do you think so many people in our society and, and in our culture um, don't react that way to the pain and instead um, try to push it away or ignore it or numb it um, or, you know, pretend it's not there in, in some way or bulldoze over it? What do you think are the the fears there or the habits there that yeah. keep people from doing what you did to say, hmm, I'm out of alignment here. I'm going to listen for maybe some some urging or some prompting as to to what might be the next step, and then I'm going to follow it. Yeah. Well, I could refer back to, um, you know, in the book, I, I talk about, I have these three friends of mine that are themes throughout the book that I call the the three apes. Uh, you know, that it starts with a a Google scientist friend of mine who was very fond of saying that we are um, we are descendants of the nervous apes. Um, you know, that he, he says the apes, the apes who were chill and wise and cool about things, they all uh, they didn't make it. They didn't live uh, that we. We are our evolutionary biology is that we are looking for threats, right? That we we don't like threats. Um, we're also descendants, you know, of the imaginative apes, and that we we're always imagining, always thinking about what, especially about uh, what can go wrong, and about the next thing that we need. So I think those two uh, habits and patterns really go against the grain of actually facing into and and looking at what uh, what is painful difficult out of alignment uh, it's it it's hard it I think we I think it, it's interesting it's this interesting blend of actually allowing ourselves to notice and be aware of what's not working but it but not to be stuck there at the same time to be able to look for solutions to look for what's what's possible and how to how to move out of those uh those really strong habits and ways that we you know i'm i'm pretty good myself at compartmentalizing it's easy it's so much of a strong habit to compartmentalize um and it takes it takes some 
I think really feeling feeling the pain and feeling the possibility. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking it's it's a safer choice and something you talk about later in the book about self compassion and and then from that self esteem that when you have a confidence a knowingness that you're going to get from all the practices in your book um, of being self aware and and self accepting that then you're going to have the confidence that there will be a solution um, for the pain and that there will be some. Uh, choice that you can make that can lead you to something different. And, and if you don't have that, then of course, you're going to be like, Oh, no, no pain here. And they're not, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, like right. the monkeys, close your eyes, close your ears, close your mouth. Right. Um, right. You say in the book, in every moment you're choosing, do you think that most people um, are aware that their life is is a composite of their choices that that they have chosen um, prior to where they are and, and currently where they are to to create the situation that they're in? Well, of course, you know, um, we're, we're all, we're all thrust into, uh, situations that, that are not exactly our choice, right? That I, I don't want to underestimate how powerful and important it is, you know, uh, you know, wh- where we live and from, you know, who our parents are, what the timing, what the timing is, all that, all that is are, are, are powerful, you know, powerful. I don't want to underestimate it. And I also don't want to underestimate uh, how much we do get to choose, uh, get to choose the, the reality that we, that we create. And it is, it is a kind of interesting and powerful blend and, and dance of, of things. Uh, the first part we have very, you know, we have very little control over, uh, but the second we, you know, is really in our, is our domain to choose the um, how do we how do we interpret the reality uh, that we live in? How do we make how do we make the best, most beneficial, wholesome, courageous choices that we can? And and you know yeah how do we deal how do we deal with especially with um, yeah the the pain and the possibility the difficulties and the opportunities. So when when someone um, we're, we're talking a little bit about how uncomfortable it can be sometimes to recognize when our values and aspirations aren't in alignment with the way we're living, and and maybe that we aren't achieving our full potential, and we have that discomfort. Um, what are some of the steps, the beginning steps to developing a greater self awareness? What are some of the big questions that people need to start asking themselves? Yeah, I want to give you know take this to a very um, concrete example. I'm mm-hmm. I'm reminded of. Uh, you know, after I left uh, business school, I uh, the first company that I started was a, a a greeting card and calendar company called Brush Dance, and we were one of the first uh, companies in the world to make things out of recycled paper. I started that company in uh, 1989, and I I was the CEO for just about 15 years. But I I always think back to it was like in the 13th year of, of running that company, I remember the day I walked into my office and as I was sitting down at my desk, there was this voice that said, my heart isn't here anymore. And, and I remember, you know, very distinctly hearing, you know, kind of that feeling and that voice. And my first reaction was, to push it away, like no, don't, don't, you know, don't ig- ignore that voice, squash that voice, because that would mean change. That would mean big change if I were to leave 
the company that I that I had started and was running and was so identified with. Um, so I think I think the first step is to um, is to notice is to notice be to be aware of those voices and also to be aware of the resistance. You know, in the um, one of the things I love about Joseph Campbell's model of the hero's journey is that you know the first step the first step on the journey and this what i love about his model is that it's really a journey that applies to all of us you know that we're all we're all kind of heroes in our own journey and that one of the brilliant things about what joseph campbell did was to identify these patterns that seem to cut across um, many different uh, cultures and times and that in some way our life is that we're all on this journey to find our true home or to find you know what's 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 the most important thing for us and that's that's the first step on the journey and uh, the second step on the journey is the refusal of the calling it's to it's the to see that we we don't want to go there because it feels so so dangerous so i think that's just such an important uh, starting place is that that hearing hearing uh, this um this sense of a calling and then noticing our own resistance to it. Throughout the book, um, you are uh, giving all sorts of ways for people to develop their, the, the key mindful leadership skills, and, and you're certain that they can be learned. Do you feel like you um, came into this life uh, innately with a lot of those skills intact, a high emotional intelligence. Do you feel like it was really something that you've worked hard to develop? <laughs> you know, I think um, I think that I, you know, I had a lot of. Um, I, I I grew up in a very kind of um, middle class, even lower middle class home, working working parents. Um, I think I was I personally was greatly. Um, affected influenced by the fact that my uh my father was manic depressive um so i think i was aware at a very early age of my father's pain and i think in some way part of me was uh both i wanted to help him i wanted to find like what is this this out of control mind or what seemed like you know a this mental um, mental illness, mental challenge. And I think I probably had my, you know, in part, there was my own fear, you know, oh, is, am I, is this going to happen to me too? And, and I think I was, um, at a fairly early age, I felt very uh, compelled to understand how the mind worked and how my mind worked. And, um, and there were many little, many little steps along the way, you know, from uh, from books that I read and people that I met that, uh, that I really wanted to, I was really, um, very passionate about understanding how, how did my mind work? How could I, how could I understand as much as I, as much as I could? I, I mean, I think of myself, Ellie, as being, I think I was uh, pretty asleep, uh, much of my childhood. You know, I was just kind of going, going through the motions in terms of, school and sports and uh one of the um one of the moments that i remember was um oh, I, I was a freshman in college and i was taking a an intro to psychology class and 
one of the books that we that was assigned to us was a book by Abraham Maslow called Toward a Psychology of Being. And I was so drawn to uh, this idea that Maslow was presenting. He used, he used the term uh, self-actualization. And, and he was unpacking this idea that it was actually possible to develop oneself to be at, a, at the really a high end of the spectrum of uh, emotional intelligent, happy, joyful, and 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 feeling one's pain like the full the full uh, blend of one's emotions was was something that you could actually achieve, and this was this was some huge um, like wow like what I remember again wondering at that point why isn't everybody doing yeah. this? <laughs> Does everyone know that this is a thing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in part I I had just been like in in my first real love relationship um with a woman and and it was so uh it became so obvious to me how incapable I was of being in a real relationship that I was so asleep I was so kind of needy and kind of uh at, you know my my emotions were so or all over the place uh, my own self doubt was huge and and when I read Maslow's words, I thought, oh, in in order for me to be in relationship, in order for me to to help anyone, I have to start by understanding myself and how how my own emotional life is working. Which meant you were paradoxically extremely self aware to realize that there's that disconnect, <laughs> yes. and then this opportunity, yes. this aspiration. Beautiful. Yes, yes. Paradoxically, I I realized just how asleep I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's big, though. Um, so, also in the seven practices of a mindful leader, you talk about the many aspects of of mindfulness throughout the book, and one you describe as letting go of wanting things to be different than they are, and bringing awareness to one's full moment-to-moment experience. So there was a great example of that. Um, And connected with that, you talk about the big mind, small mind. So maybe if you could describe those a little bit, and then what gets in the way of the big mind? Yeah, I I think I want to... um, Well, I'll go. I'll go ahead and uh, respond to that. I, I was I was tempted to roll out the the list, the names of the seven practices. No, roll out, roll it out. Yeah, they're, they're kind of beautiful. They I are. think they're, they're they're kind of like poetry, uh, right? The seven practices are: love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, uh, connect to your pain, connect to the pain of others, depend on others, and keep making it simpler. And there's something. There's a really nice sensibility about them you know the first the first four are very much about the internal work uh the the next two the you know connect to the pain of others and depend on others are very much about relationship and and then i really love the the last one the keep making it simpler is a a kind of a path toward integrating and keep over and over again to not get so hung up by all of these uh, words and ideas and paradoxes and pra- and practices, but this kind of practice of letting go of of everything that's um, extra. But back to your question, um, big mind, small mind. You know, these in a way are I think really important concepts of, um, especially this idea of big mind. 
is this very kind of grand sense of a possibility of a possibility of again big mind can be talked about at many different levels i think you know in the in the world of um contemplative practice in the world of zen big mind would be like the the world of letting go of duality cutting through our ideas of of good and bad and right and wrong and you know that like like some it's this this kind of ultimate sense of living more with a sense of with a sense of uh, presence um with a sense of uh, selflessness with a sense of timelessness with a sense of effortlessness uh that this would be a big mind um small mind in contrast is is kind of our ordinary you know we we're human beings and and we do we do have wants and needs and fears and and we do need to live in the world of good and bad and right and wrong it's not like we can escape them we do uh, but but there is something about uh this awareness of this other world this awareness you know and this is um to me this is one of the uh core practices that we're cultivating in whether we call it you know in in our meditation practice or mindfulness practice that it's a chance to cultivate this sense of of effortlessness and selflessness on the you know in the chair or on the cushion but just by kind of letting go of this the 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 dual world the small world in each you know with each exhale so let's throw out a couple other dualities that 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 brings t- to my mind that you talk about in the book and and one is that you are perfect as you are but you might need some work um that you are looking for greater self-awareness to be able to be less self-centered um an acceptance of what is and then the desire to to have more or different and so there are there are a lot of these dualities that at first glance might seem to be contradictory but in practice they're they're the same the same coin right maybe maybe the other side but the same coin yeah you know i um you know my 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 previous book was actually it's a book called know yourself forget yourself and uh it's a book that's was really all about paradox and and uh one of my favorite um i mean i i have to say i really love i love writing and of course of course i have this a love hate relationship with writing because it's it can be so uh, so difficult but i can remember uh the experience of as i was writing about these paradoxes that you're that you're addressing that that i remember the words came out that said i don't like paradox i don't i hate paradox i want clarity right we all want clarity and and what really surprised me was the next thing i wrote was well perhaps paradox is more clear than what we think is clarity right that that clarity is almost always one-sided right and linear in a way right as you're talking i'm thinking the the paradox is more all encompassing which is more clarity right if it encompasses more yeah you know i'm i'm i really like I, i'm quiet i i like to be by myself i um uh and at the same time i love speaking in front of groups of people i love doing keynote talks what but and those are just you know those are just true things about me and i think we all 
we all have, you know, we, we all have these various um, contradictions and paradoxes about ourselves. And there's something, there's something about this, you know, this human life that is, um, you know, mysterious and unexplainable and paradoxical. How did, how did we get here? What are we, what, what are we doing? What is this thing? That'll be your next book. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the book, one thing I loved is that you point out to the reader, the the tiers and levels of the practice of, of all these different aspects. Um, You describe three tiers um, in mindfulness, an interest in mindfulness, and understanding it, and then embodying it. And you talk about the same with um, meditation. And you use a, another great example, as you did with the apes, the, the three brick layers. And maybe you could talk just a little bit about who they are, um, and how they meditate differently. Yeah, I like, it's funny, I really like that story, even though it's such a simple story. And it's Right, some people might be familiar with this story. Three bricklayers. Uh, you know, a, a person goes up to the first bricklayer and says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Well, I'm just laying bricks." And he goes up to the second bricklayer and asks, "What are you doing?" And he says, "I am supporting my family." And goes up to the third bricklayer and says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "I'm I'm having a conversation with God because." I'm aware that these bricks are being used to build a church, being used to build a cathedral. And and often when I've heard this story told, it's all like the it's like the aha, you know, it's like this sense of it's all about the the third bricklayer. And it is, it's interesting. It is it is interesting this concept that that you know, three different activities that look exactly the same in a way could be described as three very different uh, activities, three very different motivations or three very different uh, results. And I use this, uh, I use this parable, this metaphor to talk about what meditation practice is, that, um, that you could say that meditation is a lot like the first bricklayer. It's like, just do what you're doing. Just, just be present just be present. This is this is like the first bricklayer. I'm just laying bricks. Most of most of what people think of as meditation, I think, is a lot like the second bricklayer, which is there's some clear intention. It's uh, meditation is seen as, you know, as a as a strategy for reducing or working with stress, maybe being uh, being more emotional intelligence, maybe more creative, a whole maybe slew. Maybe less reactive, many many reasons. And these, this is important. I think it's important that we have these uh, these two bricklayers. You know, just about meditation is just being present. Meditation is having an intention. You know, to be more skillful, better person, uh, better strategies for dealing with stress. But I think it's important to not leave out the third the third bricklayer in meditation. And this is where it gets into the more of the the non-dual uh, piece, which is meditation is also a sense of the big big mind uh, expressing one's true nature of the to use the um, the phrase Ellie that you that you refer to. Uh, this is uh, I, I think of it as as coming from uh, Shunryu Suzuki, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. He he was leading a retreat. 
uh, one day and he looked out at the kind of 50 or 60 people who were sitting this long, uh, you know, several day meditation retreat. And he said, and he looked at them and said, you are all perfect just as you are. And he paused and I'm sure everyone was quite relieved to hear about this, this perfection. And then he added, and you can all use a little improvement. And everyone, you know, kind of laughed probably. But there is this this third sense of meditation is really embodying and, and experiencing and breathing, you know, with each breath, this sense that there's nothing lacking, uh, that, um, you know, that th- this is the, the, the kind of the, the Zen, Zen style of meditation is that we don't meditate to get anything, to be better, to change, like just, just sit and feel your sense of, wholeness wholesomeness that there's nothing there's nothing lacking in us and to and to cultivate to cultivate that that aspect of meditation as well and then i i think too like sometimes you're going to be the first bricklayer like i don't know my meditation this morning i was definitely bricklayer number one you know and and that that's okay too that it's it's all there all aspects of it and sometimes you're going to be deeper into one than the other totally Totally right. It's like you 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 don't want to um, uh, kind of judge yourself or beat yourself up for not being in that in that third bricklayer place. It's 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 aspirational in some way. It's kind of but it's but it's amazing. You know, this is um, I think I think we humans tend to underestimate the power of our own imaginations, right? And that we can. We can use our imagination to, to just be able to say, you know, right, right now, right now, I'm okay. Right now, there's nothing, there's uh, nothing lacking. And and what is that like? What is it? What does it feel like to, to be cultivating that sense of okayness as opposed to, what most of us are cultivating often is that sense of what's lacking that self-doubt, that inner critic. Again, that's, you know, going back to that, uh, the first, um, the nervous ape that I, you know, mm-hmm. that, I, that I referred to earlier, that, that it's, a, it's a mechanism that keeps us alive, right? That it's important. It's important for our own survival to be scanning for threats, not only uh, externally, but I think that inner critic is that way that kind of, uh, scanning for those internal threats what what did i do wrong what's not working so to be able to cultivate a different way of being and the awareness of that right because i'm thinking i probably wasn't even the first bricklayer i was probably the guy driving the truck and dumping the bricks on the ground and i was doing it i was started to feel anxious and think oh i'm not doing a good job meditating today and then like just the awareness of letting that be true and then be okay that that, that uh, yeah. that's part of it yes and you know i was also um i was just doing a little bit of uh writing this morning about um practice number six which is uh depend on others and and i also i want to emphasize that um you know what one of the uh the 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 two the two questions that I'm most asked when I'm teaching um, this this was I, I used to do a lot of uh, I used to teach very regularly at Google and the the most often asked question I get is what is the least amount of time I could meditate and have it make a difference 
And and the second most often asked question I get is, uh, how can I sustain a meditation practice? Uh, why is it so so hard? And my my answer to the first question is that even if you just take one aware, one mindful breath every day, that can make a difference. Um, it's it's more I think about doing things in a regular uh, way than it is about uh, length of time and and there's all kinds of studies about what's the least amount of time you can meditate uh, but it, I think I think just having a regular practice but my my answer to the second question about how can I sustain a sustain a practice is to sit with others even if it's virtually even if it's um, going to some kind of a weekly meditation group I I think that meditation was was never really meant to be an individual sport. I think it's there's something very potent about um, seeing that we sit we and this is maybe a you know kind of part of the of the third brick layer that we sit in a sense to support others' practice and that we also feel how much we're supported by others when we do this meditation practice. And all I can think about is the woman in the brown poncho. Now, the, you talk about in the book that that you got up at five, you know, what was it, five in the morning, 525 in the morning, and you're kind of thinking about turning off the alarm, and you thought, nope, I've got to go, because the, the woman in the brown poncho might miss me. Yeah, that was when I, um, I first started sitting at the Zen Center. I was in my early 20s. I was living on the west side of the city, and I would drive my car across town, Walk into the Zen Center right at five thirty in the morning and and um, choose my seat. And right, this woman with the brown poncho was sitting, you know, was sitting on the left of me. And I did the same thing the next day. And there she, I sat in the same seat, and she's sitting in the same seat. And and um, we never, we didn't speak a word. And then on the third morning, my alarm goes off, and my thought was, well, I'm kind of tired. Maybe I, I'll sleep in, but I thought, hmm, that woman in the brown poncho, she's probably going to wonder where I am. And I got up, and and there I was, and and then I, you know, ten years went by. <laughs> so connected with that, you believe that that business success depends on how well we collaborate and communicate and care for one another. There, there's a dependence there, and something that you experienced very deeply in the Tassajara kitchen, um, this collaboration, the need to, to improvise, and under these um, kind of demanding uh, circumstances, just being in the kitchen, not to mention you didn't have any electricity, and that you're about to prepare. If, if people have not eaten any food that came out of there, I we have to mention it in this interview, the most incredible meals you, you will have ever eaten, um, you were preparing. And yet, so many of our business industries are predicated on this sort of cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, competition-driven approach. Um, how does that disconnect get resolved for, for either people that you work with in your trainings or just in your mind's eye as, as to what that resolution looks like? Yeah, I think, um, I think this is one of the core reasons why, uh, why companies like Google and SAP and Aetna and Salesforce, uh, I think the uh, big companies, especially tech companies where, uh, where creativity and collaboration are so important. You know, I, I remember someone saying to me once, um, if you have, uh, you know, five brilliant engineers who are working together, 
and there's a lack of self-awareness and a lack of emotional intelligence, what you get is a big mess. Uh, but if you have people working together who, who are collaborating, who can listen, who can work through uh, uh, differences in, um, in visions and opinions, you get great. You get so much more uh, results and, and success. Um, I think that became so apparent to me in my experience working in a Zen monastery kitchen where there was there was um, a, a tremendous amount, as you were saying, of um, there was real pressure uh, to produce um, meals that were of really high quality and on time. And and like any other kitchen, you know, there was um, the pace was fast. It was often hot. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, some, sometimes you'd uh, run out of ingredients, and in this this particular kitchen, if you did, you you had to you had to um, figure figure out other solutions because the st- the nearest store was um, a couple hours away, and so I really learned a lot about the importance of uh, being able to to work in rhythm, uh, to be able to have this this um, sense of of again, it's a bit paradoxical, the importance of each person doing their piece and each person excelling, but being there to uh, to support one another. And there was also that sense uh, of that third brick layer of that you're also working to support something larger than yourselves, that you're kind of the sense of service, the sense of, of producing a really exceptional food to feed and heal and uh, nourish others and and I think you know that I, I saw how um, how well those those same ways of working uh, seem to be uh, able to apply to many many different uh, business whether you're in a for-profit or non-profit or service or product business you know almost all our you know business businesses and corporation and corporations and organizations, they exist to serve. They exist to help to help other people. So it's so essential that I think that we uh, incorporate that ability to uh, excel and work well with others. And that that's a process as well. You talk about having still to at times unlearn the notion that that a independent leader, you know, is, um, is the way to go. And that that's something that, you know, it's almost steps of the awareness and then practice and and changing that, letting go of that habitual belief or narrative about it. Yeah, I think there's, um, I think the world, there's the, the world of leadership is being transformed. I mean, again, there's, there's the, there's that role, uh, for the leader to, uh, there is something about envisioning and and um, but there's also something about supporting supporting others and empower, empowering others um, creating a sense of uh, a sense of urgency a sense and a sense of meaning uh, but the the emotional intelligence part of it it's it's hard leadership is hard and it's hard to build trust I mean, one of the things that I've noticed in organizational life is that uh, it's easy to create distrust. It's easy to, the, the default in organizations, what I've noticed is cynicism, that uh, it's easy to be cynical and distrustful. It takes some real work on the leader's part to be, uh, to be self-aware, 
to be emotionally intelligent, to be mindful, to listen, to really practice listening on a deep level so that people feel really not only heard, but people feel really cared about as human beings and, and that they're not just people are not just particular roles within a company. Their people are more than that. They're they're human beings. And and I think too to to shut on that that this is a pragmatic step that mindfulness and mindful listening and and listening to people and seeing people and um, respecting people that that isn't some like oh woo woo great thing that would be nice if we all like you know Pepsi commercial I guess it's Coke you know hold our hands and love one another but that really is the path towards um, better quicker success bigger success for businesses yeah. not only for the individual but for businesses as well. <laughs> I, I sometimes uh, describe it as the the dirty little secret of the business world is that it's all human beings, and I think I think we do we still to a certain degree suffer from this old model, this what I think of as a assembly line model, where of of business where the idea was to take all of the humanness out of business and and put people in a particular box on an, and and in a way you know many businesses today you know i walk into um many companies where people are in these cubicles and there's an org chart and there's this sense that you you just are like a like a cog in a larger wheel and there you know and of course we need you know we need a certain amount of systems and organizations those are hugely important but more and more as the world of work is uh, and and technology is changing so quickly having people collaborate having people be able to um to work together to have a, a, a huge um a really grounded sense of trust as well as uh work with a healthy conflict uh, so so important you talk about throughout the book, how do we create a supportive system to support one another in being more authentic and, and to heal one another, those aspects, the, the dual aspects of, of Buddhism. And connected, it seems like, with everything we've been talking about is this, and I think you call it maybe grounded truth, the idea of, of what is the the true truth, the, the authentic self. And I think probably one of the, my most favorite part of your book was, I think it's chapter six, maybe was, it was de- um, depending, and where you outline sort of which, which person are you, you know, are you the visionary? Are you the get it done person? You know, which of these are you? And then thinking about having a sense of who you are and what your skills are and what your kind of authentic self is, and then acknowledging maybe what skill sets you don't have and what other skill sets other people do have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next step may be being um, our tendency to to react rather than respond. Mm-hmm. It seems like another core element that that runs through all of all of these um, practices. What do you see as the main obstacle to authentic action? Yeah, that exercise that you were referring to. It's something that I find it really enlightening to have a, a room filled with people. And ask people to identify which is their kind of core strength or core way of being. You know, are you a visionary? Are you a, a, a an action person? Are you a systems person? Or are you a people person? And get people to 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 choose. We we all we all have elements of all four of those different kinds of ways of being. But we also usually almost everyone can choose one and and then get people in the four corners of the room. 
and and have them then have a discussion about uh, what's so great, what's what's important. Like, so if you're a if you're a visionary, what's great about being a visionary, and how are you misunderstood by the other types of people? Uh, I particularly like this for the people who identify as systems people, people who love organizing. Um, so. Uh, and to see, you know, what's important about that role, and 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 why, and and why and how are they misunderstood? So I think I think um, in terms of re- responding to your question, I think it's that sense of of understanding that um, that organizational life requires a variety of different strengths, and that we each bring in our strength, and and that again, it's the sense of of supporting, supporting and understanding strengths and understanding that we each have different strengths, um, noticing and paying attention to growth areas. We all have our own growth areas, but in particular, how can we all cultivate our individual strengths and how can we cultivate the strengths needed around us with the people we work with so that we can collaborate and work together in a way for the, for the greater good. And I think this is also um, imagine if we could see that even from a, you know, from a political standpoint, um, if we could, um, there's so much, um, the, the level of uh, divisiveness now is, it's hard to see. And for, whether it's a political standpoint or a racial standpoint or um, in terms of uh, economic uh, in- inequality, uh, cultivating, cultivating the sense of um appreciating differences and as well as uh, practicing with seeing similarities. And I think um, part of the book on self-compassion is so elemental to that in the sense of if we have compassion for ourselves, then we can more easily have compassion for others. And I think in our culture, having compassion for ourselves, like that is a thing that is is missing for a lot of people, right? We, we, you know, that's the first, or maybe the first and the end step um, of the self-awareness and self-acceptance, and then the compassion. And linked with that, just look at our opioid crisis. We have so many people who are unhappy and in pain. I think we are 5% of the world's population, and we're 95% use of opioids. And one of the things that you point out in the book is that uh, these these wandering minds um, can lead to be lead to unhappiness. And, you know, you look at politics, you look at social media, and, and that is sort of the, the pond we're all bathing in right now, is um, this constant. uh, Yeah, I I wanted to mention, I wanted to um, say, I, I did a training uh, last year sometime with uh, Kristen Neff, who is really one of the core researchers on self-compassion. And I was really struck by uh, one of the things that she mentioned was that in, in, in the work that she does in the business world, she notices that people often have a little trouble with that concept. And the word, the word compassion brings up a sense of contemplative practice or Buddhism or something. So she often notices that instead of using that word, uh, compassion or self-compassion, she instead refers to it as building inner strength. And I really like that. Well, that's I, so good. A lot of what I do is I, I'm seen as the 
um, you know, contemplative practice guy, the mindfulness guy, the Zen guy. But I also, I'm a business guy. Um, I have an MBA degree and I've been CEO of three different companies. And to me, there's, there's something very potent about language. And I think um, so much of what, um, what I write about and teach about is how can we build inner strength? And, and in a way, you could, you could say that you know, the seven practices of a mindful leader are all about uh, building, building inner strength through, um, through, you know, through loving your work and connecting to pain and depending on others and keep making it simpler. And all these, all these practices are practices for building inner strength. I'm going to be thinking about the word compassion all day because now that you mentioned that it's, you know, it does sort of connotate this image of sort of sympathy or pity and, and even empathy that can be connected, I think, emotionally for many people with, with an element of weakness rather mm-hmm. than strength, which is exactly what it is. So I'm so excited about that. <laughs> that for the rest of the day. And well, the, other, yeah. well, the other thing I want people to think about uh, for the rest of the, of the day, whenever the day they might be listening to this, is um, a great guiding principle that you point out in the book, which is an appropriate response. It's an action that creates alignment with what's most important. And you talk a lot throughout the seven practices of a mindful leader of what an appropriate response is. And at first I kind of bristled at that. I'm like, oh, what does he mean appropriate? Um, but then you go on to explain it and it really is fantastic. Well, there's a, um, in the world of uh, Zen practice, it's a, it's somewhat of a famous uh, dialogue where a teacher, a teacher says, um, what is the teaching uh, of an entire lifetime, or sometimes I've heard it, you know, what is the teaching of, um, of a thousand lifetimes? And the teacher answers his or her own question and says, an appropriate response. And, uh, it's, you know, the, the, the word appropriate is interesting, right? It's, it's like, uh, right. It's a, it's a response. Maybe if you define it as the response that has the most benefit to all, to all concerned or or again appropriate it, you know sometimes sometimes it's appropriate to respond with incredible anger and fierceness and sometimes it's appropriate to be um, gentle and calm or do, to do nothing so it's like it's like this this um, sense of uh, being I- I- incredibly uh, responsive flexible present and maybe authentic, right? That it it is the the authentic response. Yeah, yeah. And to see that we are, you know, all throughout our days and throughout our lives, we are we're we're responding to the changing changing circumstances. So, also in the book, you mention a um, Buddhist practice of vows. Uh, Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are exhaustible. I vow to end them. Any final words on maybe where you are with that? Those are two. Yeah, those are again right. Being beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inex, are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Uh, I think uh, it reminds me of one of the first things that you said ab- about um, the sense of uh, only having uh, one career. It's kind of the mirrors that right. The one career is to. Uh, is to end our delusions, to, to 
to which which despite that they're um, in, inexhaustible to to try to um, aspire um, to become as um, aware awake as we possibly can, knowing that they'll always be they'll always be you know more work to do, and the same is true for um, for helping others to do our best. You know this this. You know, I, I, I say in the book that these are um, these are impossible aspirations, uh, but we we are impossible beings. We are impossible human beings. The um, the the depth of who we are and what our lives are is um, we'll never fully grasp it, and and that's I think not a bad thing. So I say, let's all get to it. First step: get Mark Lesser's book. Uh, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. And uh, Mark, where will people be able to to purchase it? Um, Anywhere books are sold. Fantastic. Well, it was so wonderful speaking with you. I really appreciate you being on the show and I love the book. Thanks. Thank you very much for your help. Thanks. Bye-bye.